Well, good evening, everybody. I wait a little bit of a hiccup with the scripture reading, so I will be doing it today. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. So 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 14. For those of us who are joining us on the live stream, uh, welcome to Doxology as well. My name is Steve, lead pastor, if you don't know me. And so we, we start with the scripture reading in isolation before the sermon each Sunday uh, to remind us that ultimately we're hearing from God. And so the main job of the preacher is not to share his two cents on what he thinks about life, but it's just to clarify and amplify what God's already saying in his word. And so uh, that's why we read the scripture first before moving into the sermon. So again, 2 Samuel 15, uh, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> and Absalom is David's son, just for some context. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword." This is God's word. So we have three weeks left in Samuel. So today and then two more Sundays in First and Second Samuel. And so just congratulations to you all because the work of Samuel is the third largest work in the entirety of Scripture. Uh, second, I think it's Chronicles and Kings that take first and second place. And so, uh, yeah, so we're at end of Second Samuel, three weeks from now. And then we're going to jump into 1 Peter, and that will carry us through the rest of the absurd year that 2020 is. Uh, 1 Peter, it's really uh, it's, um, very relevant to our time in our church. We'll share a little bit more in the coming weeks about why we chose that book, but excited to uh, walk through that with you all. And so as we wrap up 2 Samuel... We need to ask ourselves is, you know, so David is known as Israel's greatest king. Like, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a historical fact. He was Israel's greatest king. And so when are we going to see the height of the Davidic kingdom? Where's the apex? And the, question, the, the answer is, it's already happened. 
Like the height of David's kingdom has already happened. And we saw it back in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 9. And that's where we're shown that all the tribes of Israel are united under him. And David administers equity and justice in the land. It's also where he shows that powerful kindness to Mephibosheth, the cripple. And so already David's kingdom is crumbling. And in this passage, what we see is David's own son, Absalom, betrays him. And it's extremely painful. And so the shame about this whole thing, both with David's fall that we've looked at over the past few weeks and now Absalom here, is both David and Absalom are skilled, talented individuals. And yet they bring misery on themselves and on everybody around them because ultimately what they're doing is they're living for themselves rather than for God. Um, That's what they're doing. And so they're bringing misery on everybody. And so as we look at this passage, we're just going to look at, we're going to trace one main theme throughout chapter 15, and then we'll kind of hop in 16, 17, and 18. And the theme of this scene is following the king is better. Following the king is better. Uh, That's the main thing we're going to look at, and we'll just trace it through the story as we go through these verses. Okay, so first we'll see, how do we see that following the king is better when we look at what Absalom did. So um, what's going on here with Absalom is at this point in the story, Absalom and David had a, have an uneasy truce between them. So in chapter 13 and then in 14, Absalom murdered his brother Amnon for assaulting Tamar, uh, David's daughter. Uh, he goes away in exile and he comes back. And what's going on right now is David, he's not punishing Absalom, but he's also not letting him into his presence. And so there's this kind of like uneasy false peace going on between the two of them. And to understand Absalom, part of what will help with his portrait is know that Absalom, he's essentially the, like, Chris Hemsworth of the Old Testament. If you all know who Chris Hemsworth is, right, he played Thor in the Marvel series. I know, Robert, you know who he is, right? He's like the ultimate pretty boy, okay? Um, And so when you look at Absalom's description in chapter 14, verse 25, it says, in all Israel, there was no no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom, from the sole of his foot, so apparently his feet are beautiful, the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him, and when he cut the hair of his head, uh, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, so hence, like, the Thor, like, this long, like, you know, wavy, blonde hair, so it's super long, it's heavy, it weighs him down, and so, but notice in Absalom's profile, what is said about his holiness or his character? It's conspicuously absent, right? And that's, that's the point. And so that's who Absalom is. And so we pick it up in chapter 15, verse 1. And Absalom decides to usurp the throne from his father David. So it says, verse 1, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So uh, he's got his groupies, the pretty boy PR machine is revving in high gear. And he's, you know, like he has all the accoutrements of a king. So he's riding around, like pretending to be a king already. Often, you know, if you just pretend to be something, it can happen eventually. Then verse 2, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So, okay, maybe you mock him for the fact that he's a pretty, pretty boy, but he's, he's very disciplined. He gets up before everybody every day because he's ambitious, and he sits before the king of the city, and then what's key to what he does in verses 2 through 6 is he sows dissatisfaction with the king. It's not very hard to sow seeds of dissatisfaction with any leader, and Absalom knows this, and so that's his strategy. And so uh, see what he does? Uh, verse 2b, when somebody approaches the gate as they come to the king for judgment, Absalom says, from what city are you? 
And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, verse 3, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So he's basically saying, okay, you have a complaint. David doesn't have enough people to actually like judge accordingly and give you justice. But more than that, he agrees with everybody. So like one moment, a plaintiff comes to him and says, you know, here's, here's the situation. Absalom says, this is an outrage. You need justice. An hour later, the opposing party of the same case will come and Absalom will say the same thing. This is an outrage. You need justice. And if only I were king in the land, I would give it to you. And so See, what he's doing here is he doesn't actually have to make any hard decisions on his own. All he's doing is claiming, if I were king, I would be able to make the hard decisions, right? Always easier to uh, complain about other people's job rather than actually do it yourself. That's what Absalom's doing. And so then at verse 7, what he does is, after he's stolen many of the hearts of Israel, he goes to the king and he says, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So under the guise of worship, Absalom doesn't actually want to go worship God, but he says, hey, David, can I go off to Hebron and pay a vow to the Lord? This is ironic because um, in Hebron, that's where King David was crowned king, if you remember that, earlier in 2 Samuel. And so what Absalom does is he takes a bunch of people with him, he goes to Hebron, and he sends messengers all throughout the land saying, you know, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, verse 10, say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And then at the end of verse 12, we see uh, the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so uh, at this point, Absalom has, he's built his base enough that he's ready to execute his coup and betray David and take the throne. And so we're about to move to how King David responds to that. But first, I just, I want us to look at Absalom. And yes, he's a, he's a wicked person, right, betraying his own father. Um, but what's at the heart of what Absalom's doing. What's frightening about Absalom is here's a man who, he's ambitious, right? He's ambitious. He rises early. He plans ahead, right? He's indefatigable in meeting with people at the gate day after day after day. But the question is, why is he ambitious? Is he ambitious for God's kingdom, following David, the Lord's anointed, or is he ambitious for his kingdom, the answer is his kingdom, right? Absalom only cares about Absalom. And so here's the lesson with Absalom is you can be so close to the king and yet still choose to live for yourself. You can, still, you can be so close to the king and yet at the heart of your life from the small decisions to the big decisions, ultimately you still care about you. And so for, for you all, you know, for those of you who count yourself a Christian, you may not outright reject the king like Absalom does here with David. But the question you need to ask yourself is with your ambitions, is it for building and assembling your own kingdom here on earth or is it in service to Christ's kingdom? And because each and every one of you is ambitious. So don't buy the lie that I'm not ambitious. So a lot of you are ambitious in the sense of you have, you know, many people here have graduate degrees, you're very driven in your career, that is a, you know, that's a morally neutral thing. That's often a very good thing. But others of you, and I know because some of you have told me, you said, you know, I'm just, I'm not the ambitious type. Like one of the things that annoys me about this area is you have all these people who are just, you know, so frenetic and aggressive and enterprising and, but I'm just not the ambitious type. And I beg to defer because if that's you, then 
you have a zeal for some vision of the good life. And if it's not in the more traditional sense of like, I'm going to climb high in my career and work really hard, it may be just the good life for me is, yes, I'll work some, but overall, I just want to live a relatively unperturbed, undisturbed life where I don't have to deal with annoying people all day or annoying bosses or people who don't get me. I just want to work where I want to work and get by how I want to get by. And you know, like one of the most prominent millennial or Gen Z versions of this is just like getting a tiny home out near a national park somewhere and working remotely on your laptop, right? But what Absalom is showing us is you can, you can be so close to the king and yet have an ambition that's not ultimately for the king and his kingdom. But following the king is so much better. How much better would it have been for Absalom and for all the people in the kingdom if Absalom instead approached King David and said, David, what's your agenda and how can I serve you in it? Uh, who can I listen to on your behalf? Who can I invest in on your behalf? Because following the king is always better. And so for you, look at, like, what is your vision of the good life? For Absalom, it was to be king instead of David. But for you, is your vision of the good life, like, incredible career success? And for those of you who are career-driven, I hope you are successful in your career. But the question is, are you, is that your ultimate? Or as you do so, are you doing it at, at the expense of Christ? Where, yes, Christ is over here, I, you know, I read my Bible, I go to church on Sunday, but at the end of the day, my bottom line is my career. Or for others of you, is it just living a relatively peaceful, undisturbed life? And does that square with following the king and his agenda for your life and for the lives of other people around you? Because following the king is always better. We see the wreckage it creates when Absalom doesn't follow that. So that's what we see through Absalom's betrayal. Next, let's look at how we can learn that following the king is better from David. Okay, so David, in verse 13, just imagine if you're David. Um, so a messenger comes to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And if, if you have your Bible, it'll be helpful because I'm going to just kind of skim some, pas some passages. So then if you go to verse 23 of chapter 15, it says, All the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the book Kidron, and all the people passed toward the wilderness. This is on the eastern side of the city, like just to the east of the Temple Mount. David and his people crossed the book Kidron, they're walking out of the city, everyone's weeping. And then verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. So this is a sad scene. And what's David's grief? David's grief is twofold. So first, his kingdom's been taken away. Imagine something that you've worked for your entire life and all of a sudden it gets pulled out from under you and just shattered at your feet. So that's first. But the, the greater pain is what? It's, of course, the betrayal of his own son, like, his own son has betrayed him. And I don't know if you have ever been betrayed by somebody you trust, but it is one of the most heart-wrenching things you can go through. Uh, a good friend of mine, he planted a church about seven years ago, and a few years into their church plant, the church grew pretty quickly, and one of his own staff members, who was very shrewd, went around and, like, very skillfully told lies about my friend who was the pastor until... 
before he knew it, people were approaching the lead pastor and like screaming at him three feet from his face in his office and because they believed all these things that the staff member was telling him. And eventually the staff member left, but he took a bunch of people. He stole the hearts, if you will, you know, of a number of people in the church. And what was so painful about that? It wasn't just that, okay, now there's been division in the church, but it was also the pain of the betrayal of somebody he trusted, right, stabbing him in the back. And that's what's happened with David. And so as we continue, what happens in Chapter 16 and 17 is David goes into exile and he's hiding and you enter this chess match between Absalom and David where some of David's own prior counselors are advising Absalom now. And so like, okay, like how can we go out and kill David? That was the main objective. And eventually what happens is uh, one of David's inside men convinces Absalom to go himself along with like everybody and he goes after David, and David's side wins the battle. If you remember, David is a military leader par excellence. So David wins the battle, and Absalom's, it's kind of this sort of funny moment where you know, Absalom has, you know, he's got that long hair, and his hair gets stuck in a tree as his mule is riding under a tree. And so he's hanging, you know, suspended between heaven and earth, it says, uh, from the tree. And while he's hanging from the tree, somebody comes up and stabs him and kills him, and there's a lesson there about you know his own vanity essentially leading to his own destruction and but see what happens in the end of chapter 18 verse 33 so David doesn't know this yet and in chapter 18 verse 33 he hears about Absalom's death and it says the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept and as he went he said oh my son Absalom my son my son in Hebrew when you see a double like that my son my son it's intense it's intensity my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So what do we learn from David? Sin never, ever takes you where you want to go. Sin never takes you where you want to go. Because how did David end up in this position? It was through his choices. Right? And so for David, like he never fully rejected God. And this is a great danger for us in the church is that it's not that you fully reject God, but it's that you say, Jesus, I need you plus this. Because that's the lie of sin. It says you have Christ, but you need this to be happy. And that's what David did. He says, yes, I've got, yes, I've got God, but I need Bathsheba to be happy. Yes, I've got God, but now I need to kill Uriah and cover up to make me happy. Yes, I've got God, but I'm not going to discipline my sons and risk their rejection because that'll make me happy. Sin never takes you where you want to go. It always promises happiness, but it always ends in weeping. And that's what you see here with David. Like, when David committed adultery with um, Bathsheba, he wasn't thinking, oh, I'm committing adultery. He felt like a lover, right? When he sent the people to murder Uriah, he didn't feel like a murderer. He felt like a general, when he didn't discipline his sons, he didn't feel like a, um, a bad father. He felt like a good father. I'm just letting my sons do whatever they want to do. Because sin always promises happiness, but it always ends in weeping. It's the lie of sin. And so, if one of the ways to define sin is, okay, yes, I have Jesus, but I need this too, you know, at the heart of my life. I need it more than Jesus there is something you are tolerating in your life right now. Right? We've looked at spiritual blindness over the past couple weeks. There is something you are tolerating in your life. 
And it might be a thought pattern, it might be vanity, it might be something that your eyes continually choose to look at, it could be idleness, it could be just not choosing not to get involved with people in your life, it could be just a general disposition of Jesus, I'll worship you here, but overall my, my sights are set here for the good life. But following the king is so much better because it's what, it's what you're made for. And sin never takes you where you want to go. It promises happiness. It always ends in weeping. And so as we look at Absalom, whose ambition was the good life apart from the king, as we look at David, who said, yes, I want God plus this, and I'll be happy. How does Christ meet us in this? Because I don't know about you, but I don't wake up at the start of my day and like every fiber of my being is saying, you know, Jesus, to yours and yours alone be the glory today. I just go out and all my interactions, whether it's with my thoughts, my emotions, my actions, it's like for King Jesus and for King Jesus alone. It wouldn't just wake up and naturally like just feel like being holy. And so how does Christ meet us in this? And how he meets us in it is go back to chapter 14 or chapter 15, sorry, verse 23, where it says, all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And then in verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. And what these verses remind us of is that the gospel, it's not centrally or primarily about good advice. Hey, make your ambition for Christ and Christ alone. That's good advice. Hey, stop sinning. It never takes you where you want to go. That's good advice. And it is good advice. But the gospel, more than that, is about good news. Good news about what? Good news about how glorious Christ is and about how loved you are. Because what do verses 23 and verse 30 point you to? Well, a thousand years later, a future man in the line of David, a son of David, also crosses the brook Kidron. In John John chapter 18, we're told this. In Luke 22, we're told that this same person, after crossing the brook Kidron, he ascends the Mount of Olives, and he's also weeping. But he's not weeping because his sins have come home to roost like David's. He's weeping Because he's absolutely perfect. And where he's going is to shoulder the sins of you and the sins of me and the sins of the world. And he doesn't know if he can bear it. And so after he gets to the Mount of Olives, he falls down on his knees and he pleads with God for another way other than the cross. God says, you have to trust me. This is the only way to redeem your people. And so he goes to the cross. And at the end of his life, He doesn't cry, my son, my son, like David did. He cried out in much deeper agony when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason Jesus wept for you and suffered for you and cried out, my God, for you and then rose again for you was so that the anthem of your life, the thing that's continually pulsing in your head is not good advice. Hey, stop sinning. Hey, bring Jesus to the center. At the heart of Christ's message is, Here's what I've done for you. Here's how loved you are. And when you belong to me, when you belong to the true king, when you do sin, and you will, yes, when you do make something else at the center of your life, when you do make not me 
the kingdom that you're living for. I don't reject you. I don't even you know, turn away and discuss what I do is I come after you. And I say, my child, you're forgiven. And more than that, it's not just that you're forgiven, but I've saved you to something so much better. Because the good news of the gospel is not just you're forgiven, but I've given you something so much greater. Like, think about the life of David before Bathsheba, before Uriah, before this mess with his sons. What was the life of David like? If you remember in 1 Samuel, in the beginning of 2 Samuel, David's life was adventurous, it was wild, it was hilarious. He fought lions, he wrestled bears, he slayed giants. I'm sure it's everything that my son Titus and probably the Khan's sons as well would love to do. You know, as they're ages 8, 9, 10, 11 through 30 years old. David had a full life and he was free. Why? Because God had so captured his heart He couldn't get over the fact that God loved him and God wanted to use him, that everything he did was for God and for God alone. And you compare compare that to now, at the end of chapter 18, where David's weeping as his daughter's been assaulted, two of his sons are dead, his kingdom is in tatters. Because sin never takes you where you want to go and following the king is so much better And so as a closing application for us, as you look at the, the heart of the gospel being the good news about how loved you are in Jesus, is let's look at what was a common thread between Absalom and David. So maybe you are like Absalom and you fully rejected King Jesus. And the central call of the scriptures is to embrace Jesus. He's the only one who can save you. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. And when you receive Jesus, the true king, what David and Absalom both did is, because even David, right, he was following God, but he still rejected God partially. What they both did is they used people as a means to an end. Right, so for Absalom, when he was meeting people at the gate, saying, I'm going to give you justice, he really didn't care about his people, right? He was just trying to build up his following. Right, with David, he used Bathsheba as a means to an end. He used Uriah as a means to an end. He used his sons, and he used many people as a means to an end. And for us today, I mean, every, so much about our culture, about the way our work environments work, about technology, is it conditions us to treat people as a means to an end. Actually, the community group I'm in, we had a, actually a really great discussion about this on Tuesday. And so I, just, I want us to ask, where in your life are you using people as a means to an end? And one way you know this is just like throughout your week, do you is one of the central things you go after is doing as much as you can to invest in other people. Because as you follow Christ, Christ is always moving toward people. You saw it in his earthly ministry, and that's what he, what he calls us to do. When you're investing in other people, like unconditionally, it's, it's messy. You'll often be perplexed at why somebody's behaving a certain way. It's painful. But it's one of the ways, you know, that you aren't just using people you know, you're not just getting with the people who get you. You don't just meet with people when it's convenient. But you invest in people just as Jesus did. And I can tell you that the ways I've been changed the most for the better, in addition to Mary and Kelsey, is men in my life who are very successful people, but they forego, they forewent advancements in their career 
And they forewent even just like alone time for themselves to invest in me when I had nothing to give them in, in return. And so for you, if you're the very career-driven type, and I hope you are successful in your career, do you do it at the expense of investing in others? If you're the type of person who just loves the idea of a just undisturbed life, does that square with investing in other people? Because Christ is always moving toward investing in other people, and following the king is so much better And so let's do that as a church body. All right, let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for investing in us when we cost you everything. And Lord, I thank you so much for forgiving us even when we do put something ahead of Jesus. I thank you for forgiving us and loving us when... um, Sorry, I can't multitask. (laughs) And loving us, uh, Lord, when we don't pursue Christ and his kingdom above over everything else. And Lord, uh, I pray that you will help us as a church to be so captivated by the fact that Jesus patterned David's life in the way he was exiled outside of the city and he wept, uh, but because it was to bear our sins and adopt us into your family. Help us to invest in other people as you have invested in us and continue to do so each and every day. Continue to enrich us as we finish out 2 Samuel and uh, place our hearts on the true King, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.